0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak, I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, DC. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Darren Shaw, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin and co-author of The Turnout Myth. He is also the co-director of the Fox News poll and serves on the Fox News decision desk. Roger and Darren discuss what happened in the 2022 midterm elections, why there was not the expected red wave, the role of the abortion issue, the effect of candidate quality and the burgeoning showdown between Trump and DeSantis. Darren Shaw, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm glad to be here, how are you doing?
0: Well, I'm doing well. We're really excited to have you here because Not only are you our favorite professor from the University of Texas at Austin, Don't Tell Willem Voting, we tell him he's our favorite too, Uh, and the co-author of The Turnout Myth, Voting Rates and Partisan Outcomes in American National Elections. But you are the person we go to to tell us what happened and explain what happened in national elections. And of course, we're just coming off this midterm. You're back in Texas after spending time in New York at the Fox News Decision Desk. Darren, this Midterm did not go the way that many, particularly those in your industry, expected. Yeah. Were you in the minority or were you
1: surprised? Um I wasn't nearly as surprised as everyone else was. Um and, and that's not because my crystal ball is any clearer, I think. It's just that uh in midterm elections, what what happens is narrative, which is correct, a correct narrative in some sense, was that you know the the president's party takes a beating, especially uh, you know two years into their first term. That the the glow of the uh, you know the presidential victory and the first hundred days is sort of worn off. The policies uh, become real. There are some defeats that accrue. There are constituencies that are. Uh, you know less than satisfied about the way the first two years have gone and uh, that always uh you know saps the strength of the in party um you know and the the, the range I guess the average loss of seats in the house is uh, about two dozen about 24 25 seats um and so people were talking about well if if that's the average loss, then what do you expect when the president's at uh, 40% approval and the economy has is, is got all the problems that the U.S. economy has, that the inflation rates are so high? So they were talking about, you know, uh, seat losses in the 40s or 50s or even 60s. Um, the problem is that uh, the Republicans didn't lose seats in 2020. They, they actually gained seats. And one of the theories that we draw in political science to explain the president's loss in these midterm elections is called surge and decline. And surge and decline says that in the presidential election, um, you get higher turnout. uh, A lot of peripheral voters come in and they support the president's party by definition, right? That they help fuel the person's person who wins victory, but they kind of lose interest, and the president's not on the ticket two years later, and so they decline. They move out of the electorate, and what you're left with is an electorate that is you know in this case more republican uh more motivated by kind of anger and disappointment with the way things have gone the party is sort of hungry to win after the last cycle right so that's that's surge and decline but if there's not much of a surge you don't expect much of a decline and that was something that people kept missing as, as part of the puzzle this time around the republicans didn't lose 20 seats in 2020 so that there are lots of you know lots of seats where uh, you know, Democrats won, but Trump won the presidential level or something like that, like mismatched districts. In fact, the Republicans took almost all the low hanging fruit in the last election. So we always thought these, you know, predictions of 50, to 60 seats were crazy. Right. But we did think that given, if you just plug the fundamentals in the approval rate and the, and the economic numbers, that you were going to see something in the kind of the 18 to 30 range. In the in the House and probably a Republican pickup of a couple seats in the Senate, so it's totally fair to say the Republicans underachieved. But you know, the notion they were ever going to pick up fifty or sixty seats was was just sort of crazy. I would have put the over under at about twenty four. And as of you know, what do we got? Uh, um, One o'clock uh, p.m. Pacific time. Uh, you know, here yeah, on,
0: on the day of recording here, here in middle of of November.
1: Wednesday, yeah, here on Wednesday. Um, you know, the Republicans have gained, I believe, seven seats in the House. And they've actually lost one in the Senate with the, the Fetterman seat. Maybe they recoup that in Georgia, maybe not. So, you know, plus seven in the House, maybe plus eight, and then minus one to even in the Senate. That's the that's the source of consternation, right? That they expected it, you know, maybe twenty. They got we're not zero. talking
0: maybe fifty seats. We're not even talking, we're, you know, we're talking less than less than 10.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I guess though, Roger, the point the point that I would raise is the conversation begins. I think he underachieved by about a dozen. Uh, in the House. Right. And I think you underachieved by a seat or two in the Senate. But, you know, that leaves you with a bare majority in the House and you lost in the Senate.
0: Right. So so that, you know, it's highly consequential that even yeah. though the underperformance doesn't seem so significant, it's, you know, a dozen here, one or two there, of course, because we're so divided, it, it, it results in a, a narrow majority, in one chamber. And of course, without the majority in, in the other chamber, that's the Senate. Right. Right. One of the things that I'm very curious to hear from you is exit polling in terms of and and subsequent polling in terms of mandate Hmm. Uh, what were the voters trying to convey how do we organize it i mean it's in, in a case of a wave you know the the expected red wave whether that was 20 seats in the house or 50 seats in the house right generally you could confidently say the american people wanted what the republicans were selling which clearly would be you know serious Um, check on the Biden administration, progressive initiatives, spending, right? Focusing exclusively almost on inflation and the like. How do we interpret, if at all, a mandate coming out of this midterm?
1: Well, that's a really good question. Um, And I think it's, it would have been the problem for the Republicans had they achieved, even at the level we were talking about, like flipping a couple dozen seats and maybe taking a narrow narrow Senate majority in a, you know, decent-sized house majority. I think they probably would have overinterpreted the election. Now, I think the danger is on the other side, which is if you read the data, this is this is certainly not a mandate to, to continue the policies the Biden administration has has sort of put forward. Um, I know there are a lot of Democratic pollsters who will talk about the individual popularity of some of the initiatives the Biden administration has put forward. I, I think that's fair, but. The overriding theme from the exit polling data and the what we did was this uh, uh, large survey, pre-election survey with NORC at the University of Chicago with uh, AP. So that's AP calls it Vocast, Fox calls it the Fox News Voter Analysis, but it's about 136,000 uh, surveys in the states and then grouped into a national survey, and what we found is that the mood of the country is really pretty negative. Evaluations of the economy are really bad. Eighty uh, percent basically rate the economy negatively. The economy is the dominant issue. I think there was a lot of narrative out of the election that the that abortion was on par with the economy as a driver. That's that's a pretty contentious reading of the data. If, if you ask people the most important problem, the economy significantly outperforms abortion, but. People did say abortion was important and they did cite it as a reason for their vote. So it's 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 an overinterpretation of of the data to say that Dobbs was on par with uh, rising prices. But it's not incorrect to say it was a factor.
0: Okay. So, so take us through that. Right. Because I was going to go to abortion next and, and the Dobbs decision and whether it impacted pro-life Republicans in turnout or uh, yeah. uh, pro-choice Democrats. Could it at once be that I'm really concerned about the economy? And I'm really concerned about what's going on in my state. Take Michigan, for example, a really interesting state yeah. with respect to abortion and and it, it results in, you know, Democrats eking it out. I mean, is it yeah. or, or is it or is it truly a choice? Like, you know, you're if you're if you're in it for the economy and that's your concern, you're you're not gonna support a Democrat.
1: Yeah, I think voters can weigh lots of different factors and lots of different issues in their minds. And I think that was something that Republicans kind of lost sight of. I'm not convinced that Democrats had some sort of tremendous insight into that. I think in a large sense, the Democrats threw, you know, 20 different issues up against the wall, and we're hoping that a couple of them would stick. And, you know, in in a lot of these instances, Republicans died the death of a thousand cuts, which is you you cobble together a coalition of enough abortion uh, voters, you know, enough social security voters, um, you know, enough voters who just think the Republicans are, are, you know, too extreme, and you end up with, you know, 48%, which is enough to get you across the finish line in a lot of these races. Um, I don't think that, accrues to the strategic brilliance of democratic strategists. They played they dealt the hand to, to, you know, they played the hand they were dealt. Um, and it was an election in which the forces, the short-term forces, the economy, the mood of the country were very much against the the ruling party. But, you know, the, I think what the Democrats did do and what Biden did um was to make this choice, um, to sort of say, oh, there's a lot of things going on, who do you trust to lead us moving forward, Um, to try to raise the salience of these issues where they're 50-50, you know, half like the Republicans, half like the Democrats, which is a heck of a lot better than 80-20, which is to campaign on the, you know, positive versus negative interpretation of the economy. Um, You know, I think, so there are four kind of takeaway points that that I've gleaned and stolen from other observations, the the other stories and narratives. The first is Biden was much less important than we thought he would be. Um, I'll bet if you run a regression, which I intend to do, uh, looking at the importance of presidential approval on, on the vote, especially the Senate vote, that it would have as weak a correlation as we've seen in any recent midterm election. So it's not a referendum
0: on Joe Biden. I'm I'm voting for something else.
1: Right. I guarantee you that, that approval of Bush, in 2006, approval of Obama in 2010 and 2014, approval of Trump in 2018 were much more highly correlated with Senate voting than you saw in this election. than right now, approval of Biden correlates or predicts um, Senate voting. Second, Trump still matters. If you go back to any of those previous midterms, here's what I don't think mattered. People's impression of the previous president. Right. right? I just don't think, you know, in 2010, approval of Bush was going to predict voting. Uh, but it sure did in this cycle, right? So Biden doesn't really matter that much. Trump still matters a little bit, maybe as much or more than Biden. And then, you know, I do think that someone had a great phrase, so I am I wish I could attribute this, but you know, out of touch beats out of their minds. And I think that's, I can't help but think about that in this election, that that was the way the Democrats portrayed this election, right? You know, that, well, you know, maybe we're a little out of touch, but they're too extreme. So so what you're saying is, is that this was strategic, that
0: it paid off, that the president using his bully pulpit managed to convince voters, Democrats, independents, right? That's who he was appealing to convince them and saying, hey, you know what? The the alternative are, you know, crazy MAGA voters and we can't afford to let them win an election anywhere. And, And so what you're saying, Darren, is it's not about me, it's about them. And if you frame it about them, then, you know, it'll be a 50, 50 choice rather than 80, 20.
1: Perfect. That's exactly right. Um, you know, the mega mega stuff that I think a lot of us thought is, you know, that's, that seems kind of cheesy or are you really just appealing to your base? But, but i even say abortion kind of worked in this regard which is abortion has two potential inputs the first is as a substantive policy issue so in states where there were automatic trigger laws you know that, that came into effect once dobbs came down and roe v wade was overturned um, you know those they're legitimate and important substantive debates about what sorts of restrictions and and the timing of those restrictions uh, but abortion is also a marker issue and it's a marker issue that one side is too extreme and i think the democrats were very able in using abortion as a, as a sort of a avatar for Republican extremity. Yeah. Is that,
0: is, is that what we saw in Michigan? I mean, do you yes. attribute what happened in Michigan no there?
1: Yeah, no question. And, and you know, that that's, uh, there are a lot of issues like that. You know, there are issues that we, we think of in, you know, strictly in policy terms. And I think sometimes we underestimate the extent to which that, they, they not only work on one level, but they work on another level, sort of queuing in. I, I think that there are issues like the deficit um, or campaign finance. I think the deficit, it's an issue people sort of care about, but it's an issue that's a marker for government's incompetence, right? They can't even balance their checkbook. So people say they care about the deficit, but what they really believe is that the government's just out of control and campaign finance is another one right people don't actually care about the limit of individual contributions versus but what they care about is the notion that government's corrupt it's bought and sold so when you talk about those issues they kind of work on two levels and i couldn't help but thinking that way about abortion which is there are genuine sort of public policy issues with abortion but i can't help but think it worked at this other level that it it was a a great issue you 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 take
0: a policy issue and it 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 almost transcends policy and enters a realm of politics where yeah. it's a euphemism for labeling your opponent as irresponsible or not, you know, not with you know. it or whatever. Yeah.
1: And it, it, it kind of keys into deeper sentiments that people have. And it's that deeper sentiment that matters. And and there's a part of me that thinks, I don't know that the Republicans lost people because they lost a substantive debate on, uh, you know, the, the level or nature of restrictions on abortion. I, I can't help but think that they lost a debate on whether the party is just too extreme for, you know, right. um, voters well, are trying to nappy.
0: independence, Darren. Uh, yeah. That's obviously in these in a tight race, in a tight election, divided country where even those, quote unquote, you know, extreme candidates, they're not losing by a whole lot. There were a lot of tight races, right. particularly if you look at you know the, the Senate and some of the yeah. gubernatorial races. So independence become critical here tell us how they voted and 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 what was motivating them
1: yeah we had uh we had on average in the national poll 95% of democrats voted for the democratic candidate on the other side 94% of republicans were voted for the republican candidate so the the notion this is house um there was slightly greater defection in the senate races but the notion that there's all sorts of you know uh, squishy democrats or squishy republicans who went to the other side's not true Independence in this case broke 42% for the Democrats, 39% for the Republicans. The, the, the remainder is people who said they don't know or didn't vote or you know what have you. So, so independents do abstain from voting at higher levels. The Democrats had a slight advantage. I think what you saw, Roger, in this election was that because short-term forces were favorable to the Republicans, the distribution of party ID shifted slightly to the right. So in other words, we had more Republicans in the electorate. Than we ha- certainly than we had in 2018. The Republicans are going to end up winning the House vote nationally, um which is it's interesting. This is a common claim of Democrats when they lose that the system is rigged because they're actually winning more votes, but they don't get as many seats. This is one of those instances where the Republicans are going to win. Yeah. Now they're yeah, going to win the good, House. There's a
0: good Wall Street Journal editorial about that, yeah. uh, pointing out the history of Democrats questioning the fairness. And it would, you know, kind of whether we're truly a democracy because they win the total number of votes, but you still have a Republican majority and now it's the reverse. But the Republicans are going to start questioning the fairness and (laughs) our democracy because Democrats – you know, uh, they didn't have as, as many seats as, as it should. That's
1: right. Been. Yeah. The, the sort of seats to votes. Um, and I, I think you're, you're going to end up with a actually pretty equitable distribution of seats to vote this time. But yeah, Republicans are pretty much going to win the popular vote. And in the past, I mean, you know, we've estimated that the Democrats would have to win by two or three points to actually win a majority. Well, that doesn't look to be the case at least in this election, the first after redistricting. So that's kind of interesting. that Um, One more time. After redistricting, we no longer,
0: Democrats no longer need two to three points to
1: to what? Yeah. So let me clarify. After the 2010 census, it looked like because of uh, some Republican gerrymanders, but also because the Democratic vote is more concentrated geographically. You know, you think about Manhattan or San Francisco, right? You you can't draw a 55-45 district in Manhattan. Right. Um, you know, it's going to yeah. be nine to one. And from a purely strategic point of view, those votes are what we in political science call wasted votes. You know, once right. you're over 50, you know, to 55, the extra votes don't get you any more representation. Right. So, so, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about packing the vote in redistricting cases about how one side draws all of the opposition into a small number of seats, and then maximizes their vote across the remaining seats. Right. So the Republicans, for those reasons, both you know, completely legitimate, which just reflects the geography of the party support. And then some, you know, creative line drawing in mm-hmm. some states had an advantage so that we thought the Democrats would have to probably win the national vote by, you know, three points or so in order to make sure they won a majority in the House. Got it. That's the thinking. This time around, everybody knew the Democrats did a better job of, uh, you know, cutting the legs out from under Republican efforts to gerrymander. They actually have their own gerrymanders in place in a few states. So we thought it was going to be much closer. Well, this is our first election since the redistrict, and In fact, um, the Republicans don't look like they've got any redistrict. Now, people push back a little bit on that. But certainly, you look at the votes, they're going to win probably 220 um, with a 218 majority. But it looks like at this point, they're probably going to win the popular vote. I should sort of check my figures right now just to make sure I'm totally accurate uh live results republicans 51 democrats 47 so about a four point lead um so republicans actually if you just take now they're gonna be votes from california that shrink that margin a little bit but that indicates republicans are slightly underrepresented um in terms of
0: right uh, because from 51 47 there should be more than a three-seat majority
1: right exactly majority. um but uh maybe anyway, that's that's an interesting factoid i i think in this election i guess the the point of talking about this popular vote distribution is that um the electorate was more republican this time than it was in 2020 or 2018 um but what that meant what that means in polling terms is that people who sometimes say they're independent when a when the short term force favors one side they'll they'll say like you know think of you all right so Roger you're a complete swing voter you're independent But the economy is kind of tough, and you're not feeling great about the Democrats. So this time around, you say you're independent. Then when I ask the secondary question, well, do you lean closer to the Democrats or Republicans? There's a decent chance under these circumstances, you go, well, I lean Republican. So now we treat you as a Republican. Meanwhile, soft Democrats, Democrats who are like, I'm a Democrat, but I'm not a very strong Democrat. Right now, they might say, I'm actually independent. Um, So when everything shifts slightly to the right, what you end up with is a group of independents that are a little more left-leaning the normal cuz those are the you know they're basically independents uh, most of the right leaning independents have actually moved and say they're republicans the left you know the kind of soft democrats have moved into the independent cohort so that independent cohort sometimes will do funny things in elections like this where you're like well, I thought this was a good election for the republicans what i think is the case is that people who are independent this election um go back yeah, they're they're actually pretty left leaning. They'll probably end up shifting back to the Democratic Party fairly soon. Um, so I wouldn't totally overinterpret the small advantage that Democrats have with independent voters because Republicans actually had more identifiers in this race. And that really helped them.
0: I want to go back to what you said before, which played down those kind of split tickets. Those are going down and they're selecting an R and then they're going for a D and they're back to an R across their their ballot. I mean, there's some high-profile races where clearly that was happening. Uh, yeah. Two that come to mind, Georgia, you have a, you know, Governor Kemp, you know, had 50-plus, I don't know, uh, uh, supporting him. And and then you got to Herschel Walker, who couldn't get to the 50% threshold. Uh, in Ohio, I think it was even more dramatic with mm-hmm. DeWine having uh, winning his seat, uh, but then J.D. Vance. Um, right eking out a victory but trailing uh governor wine uh, substantially indicating someone you
1: know is going r to d and yep. i think it was play, played out in other places uh as well yeah well look at the pennsylvania race on the other side where you know shapiro you know destroys mastriano in the gubernatorial race and then fetterman defeats oz but but the drop off from um you know from shapiro to fetterman is pretty considerable so so Roger, you're right. There, there's a lot of that. I my sort of theory, I think the focus you raise is right, which is um to look at the Republican side, right? To to look at the sort of high water mark that the Republicans have in some of these swing states, uh, Georgia and even, even Arizona, although Lake ends up losing, but she does considerably better than Masters, really. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that that drop off. Um, I think that's actually a reflection of, as I mentioned, these sort of softer Republicans who you know, kind of independent, a little right leaning, but you know, they don't really like what's going on in the Biden administration. So they say they're Republicans. But when you draw those people in, you end up getting more defection, right? That they're they're with the Kemps, right? They're with these sort of mainstream uh, you know, Dewine type candidates in, in Ohio, but they can't really pull the trigger when it comes to a Herschel Walker or so a are, doesn't Dan. that
0: reflect I mean there's been this whole discussion about, you know, candidate quality matters now. And yeah. no, we, we see that you have, and we can talk about, you know, particular views that uh, make a candidate less qualified or, you know, not good quality, uh, but you can't win unless you're appealing to a base broader than the hard car, hardcore partisan, whether you're a you know, Democrat or Republican, it's just the numbers don't, won't get you there. Uh, yeah. Do you subscribe to the view that, you know, candidate quality matters or is that simply just obvious? I, I, it's, Is it it's surprising not, to you here? Yeah,
1: it's not as obvious as you would think. I mean, political science, we actually have. I, I don't know that, to be fair, not to caricature people I, I kind of argue with intellectually over these things. I think they all argue that candidate quality matters to some, to some extent. But they would probably say that, um, you know, it's minimal. That uh, what you're really looking at these days is just a party line vote. But I think in this election, Roger, to your point and to to kind of buttress the case for people like me and others who talk about campaigns matter and candidates mattering, you have these just high profile examples. I mean, I would concede that you're only talking about a few points that even, let's say, lesser quality or suboptimal Republican candidates or Democratic candidates, too, um, even they get a big chunk of the party vote. But they don't get as much, and then they don't win independence over at sufficiently high, you know, sufficiently high volume to actually win elections in these close states. Um, now we're the not question about is not whether or not they're going to get party support. The question is, can they win an election? Right, right. And and they lost. And and it's not the first election. I mean, you know, you could talk about leaving, uh, you know, leaving marbles on the table, as we used to say. The Republicans left a lot on the table in this election. I mean, you know, if you think about. I think you and I would have had a conversation. There's basically 10 Senate seats that were interesting this time around. Three that were kind of Republican reaches, Washington, Colorado, New Hampshire. Three Democratic reaches, Florida, North Carolina, and Ohio, right? They're interesting, but we kind of expected. Then four in the middle, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And the Democratic Kennedy won everyone. The only race I think where the Republicans nominated someone, I think we would call it an establishment candidate. And even there, it's a little dodgy, is uh, Laxalt in Nevada, Nevada. Right. But Laxalt comes with some negatives associated with his family and, and you know, his father and his time in office. Um, so even there, it, it's not clear, you know, he sort of came with all of the baggage and none of the, you know, kind of positives associated with an establishment candidate. And then, you know, Masters, Walker, Oz, all had divisive primaries where, you know, it's not just, I think you're right, Roger, about candidate quality, but you get this self-fulfilling prophecy, which is candidates that are seen as problematic attract strong opposition to the primary. They have bruising primaries. Oz came out of that race in Pennsylvania. That primary race was viewed more negatively than positively by Republicans. So you're in talking Sp- about
0: Oz going up against Dave McCormick. He comes yeah. out of the primary, uh, a beaten up
1: candidate. That's right. And, and, and has a, an enormous task just getting... You know, back up to what a standard Republican would get, you know, let alone a Republican with any kind of crossover appeal. Never actually got there, got reasonably close, um you know. and Against a very flawed Democratic candidate. That's I mean, that, right. Uh, yeah. I mean, never have more favorable
0: conditions, I would think, than uh, an opponent who really just physically yeah. couldn't debate.
1: Yeah. And, and you kind of look at that and you're like, wow, I mean, you, you can't get within— three points in that race, you know, with the economy, you know, people with the reservations about the economy that they have, the reservations about the sitting president. What was fascinating, Roger, is in these races, there was a rule of thumb that it's it's very difficult for a candidate to outpoll the president by more than four or five points. Now, what I mean by that is if you take Biden approval in each of these states and his approval was never more than 42% in any one of those four battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. And for candidates to poll, I think Fetterman ends up polling 11 points ahead of Biden. He ends up getting, I think, 53. Biden's approval is 42. So he outperforms the president by 11 points. We, had, In political science, our thought was that it would be very difficult to get more than five points. Above, above the president. Polling. And we saw in each of these races, I think the lowest was out in these swing states was, I think, um, Cortez Mosto outperformed, Mosto Cortez, sorry, outperforms Biden by like five. That was the lowest. So the lowest was
0: Nevada, where she outperforms Biden by five. But it goes back to your point, I think, that you made earlier, which is Biden effectively made this election not about him. Right. Meaning, if it was about him, you wouldn't be able to have candidates outperform the president in terms yep. of support it was if it's cho- about something else
1: yep. then they could it wasn't just a refer. it's a cliche but it wasn't just a referendum it was a choice and you know I, I i think you can go a little overboard with you know how great they did in framing it i mean any choice is going to beat the results of a referenda when you know the economy was in the position it's in and just the general mood of the country post-pandemic is, is so sour um you know, so I don't know that it was a matter of you know, brilliantly raising points where the Democrats were hugely advantaged. They got to 50-50, but 50-50 is a lot better than 20-80, which is where they were looking, you know, last spring, I guess.
0: I want to pursue this point about quality candidates because it's often used as a euphemism or another way of talking about Republican nominees who deny yeah, that Joe Biden won the election in 2020. Um, you know, so the high-profile races that you just talked to to a candidate, they supported the big lie that Donald Trump won in 2020. Right. And there's there's a there's a view out there, and I'm wondering where the the data and the polling kind of takes us. That because of these results, Kerry Lake loses, Blake Masters loses, Oz loses. We'll see what happens in Georgia, right? Um, one exception of course is jd vance i don't know, there, there's you go through the list of of trump back candidates which of course that means that they support trump's narrative that he won the election uh, i think he's trump batted 3 for 16 or something like that yeah Um is is does that lead us to conclude that you know we we the 2020 recipe you know leads to a loss and therefore Rest in peace. Fighting over what happened in 2020. Move on, or yeah. do you think? Well, there's still 90. I the number. Four percent of Republicans who are really motivated by that, because those because there was 94 percent of Republicans voting for these candidates.
1: Yeah, I think if you just put your strategy out, and I'm, you know, I I think we're on the same page here, Roger. I I just think that the evidence that there was fraud or cheating in 2020 is, is completely non-compelling. Um, that's my professional view on this. Um, I think you can have a a more productive, interesting debate about the way we conduct elections and should we do mail-in voting versus in-person yeah. early and that kind of, that, that's, that's a completely legitimate and important discussion. Um, but once the law, I think there's, you've turned the page a little bit. I, I think this election has in in some ways back to the future. Remember the old days when, you know, you would lose and you would gracefully concede right. um and and talk about bringing the country back together again and I actually thought to, to give credit where it's due. I remember on election night Stacey Abrams conceded fairly early in in Georgia and there was a little joke amongst the decision team, "Well, wait, which election is she conceding?" Um, <laughs> I know she never did it for the previous one. Yeah, exactly. Um but I actually thought that was that was Symbolically important, I thought. Also, strategically, it was a smart move. Which is, the Democrats are the party of accepting reality, accepting these right. results the and facts. Yeah, exactly. And and so, even though she lost, I thought that was kind of important. And I thought it was important for Republicans to come out and concede, you know, these elections where they were clearly on the short end of the stick. Um, I think it's important for two reasons. First of all, I think it's from a democracy perspective, it's just critical. You know, we we just have to restore faith and confidence in elections, especially elections duly administered. But also, I think strategically, you have to do that to take the next step, which is, okay, now we need to embrace Republicans, need to embrace mail-in voting, you know, whatever the laws are. Embrace the laws and use the laws. I think if you look at vote by mode in this election— yeah. It, it, the Democrats absolutely destroyed the Republicans in early and convenience voting, especially mail-in voting. And you ask, well, aren't you just cannibalizing election day vote? Does it really matter? Well, look, I was watching the weather in Nevada on election day. Roger, I don't know if you were. There was a massive snowstorm in Nevada. Um, they actually opened up the ski resorts in Tahoe, like earlier than they ever did. And, you know, where do Republicans win? They win elections on election day now and in the rural parts of the state, which were under a blanket of snow. I don't know that, you know, that's what costs laxalt, but guess what? Allowing yourself to be subject to those sorts of forces is just bad politics. Um, you know, if, if, if you're a 0.99 voter, right, I'm 99% sure that Roger's going to vote on election day, but there's one percent chance that you have a dentist emergency that your car you know has right. a flat tire get that vote in early get the yep. vote in and if you're talking about a 0.99 that changes to a 1.0 across a million plus voters that's an appreciable increase in your in your raw vote total and i just find you know if you look at the republicans losing by five thousand votes here twelve thousand votes here twenty thousand votes here i would think that the writing is on the wall that you have to be more creative and you have to accept where elections are going. I have my own sort of problems with mail-in voting. I really have a hard time. Yeah, we've spoken that.
0: about that before.
1: Yeah, yeah, like I said, the future of the United States uh, democracy shouldn't be in the hands of the U.S. Postal Service. But, <laughs> um, but the laws, well, right. and there and there are different ways
0: to do it. You know, in Florida, they do it and they get accounted, which is another issue in a, in a timely fashion. Just, uh, but but I want to go back. You're you're kind of framing lessons from the 2022 midterms and how and what the Republicans should learn from it. Again, we're with Darren Shaw, uh professor at the University of Texas, Austin, and uh known as uh expert on on polling and and sits on the Fox News decision desk. We're talking about the lessons for Republicans after 2020 20, excuse me, 2022 midterms. Darren, one lesson is Republicans can't fight mail and vote and got that. If to go back to the other one, I mean, you have upcoming presidential election. How much should 2020 matter? How much should yeah. Republicans in a primary say, well, it should have been Donald Trump in 2020. Joe Biden is not a legitimate president to garner primary support or because of just, you know, Pure political calculus. Could you make an argument saying it's a losing proposition? You take that tack, you will not get elected, whether at the presidential yeah. on down.
1: You know, a couple of things. You know, we talked about the the vote by mode as being an important lesson. I think the lesson about candidate quality applied to to the big enchilada to the presidential is 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 a critical lesson. Um, you know, it's such a complicated process, and and I think. For all the, you know, if you're going to pick winners and losers, then I, I certainly don't think Donald Trump comes out of this election as a winner. Um, you know, I think he's accrued a lot of baggage. I think that the the knives are out a little bit. That there's a sense of blood in the water. If I can kind of keep pouring metaphors on, <laughs> um, but um, he's a formidable candidate in a Republican primary, um, and the party has no real control over that, right? I mean, and you know, one of the lessons I would say sub-presidential, Roger, is that um, the Republican party needs to do a better job of identifying and recruiting and backing strong candidates. You, you know, this sort of all hands off or or even, you know, kind of giving the establishment impromptu to a candidate, but not backing them with resources or organizational support is kind of a killer. These, these candidates are getting beat in these elections, and the Democrats certainly know that. I mean, in New Hampshire and other states, they actively kind of- yeah, They, the they
0: contributed to that.
1: Right. Exactly. Um, I would suggest that the Republican Republican voter model ought to be the Democratic 2020 model, which is, you know, there was a wonderful Saturday Night Live sketch with Woody Harrelson doing Joe Biden. And he gets up and Harrelson goes, you know, Donald Trump doesn't want me to be the nominee. You know, nobody on the stage wants me to be the nominee. Nobody in America really wants me to be the nominee. <laughs> and I thought it was utterly brilliant and it captured the essence of Biden. They didn't want Biden, but they thought Biden was the only one who could defeat Trump and Republicans one question that you know de- for Democrats electability was one of the top criteria they brought to the table when they voted in the 2020 primary electability and ejectability in the general, in the general. Yeah. and I think Republicans I mean do they want to win do you want to win this election um or do you want to make a point you know and and I think Trump is is really I mean he's won an election so you give him due credit for that but Trump to me is a statement candidate now um you know he's lost
0: three successive elections
1: yeah exactly i I think that's that's pretty clear um do you want to win or do you want to make a statement and it's it's tough to look at desantis and youngkin and some of these other talented republican candidates out there and not think that they're not going to be better situated to take on biden or whomever in 2020 i'll try
0: to get this question the last time and then we'll move on to the to talking about uh desantis because that is uh clearly one person who really enjoyed (laughs) this midterm uh, and the the rising star uh, only increased, but from a purely kind of pollster consultant standpoint, right, taking a stand on on 2020 in a Republican primary, you know, has it changed? It clearly mm. helped you in the yeah. it, 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 in 2022, uh, but after getting the prime get, getting the nomination, but after this midterm. You know, is there any more
1: clarity on whether that's that's a good thing? I think it's a disaster. And I think the data are pretty clear on that um, in a couple of ways. The first is the mainstream media are going to crucify you for that position. Right. So that you know that. Um, secondly, the way the primaries work in in some states there are closed primaries where only Republicans are participating in other states. There are open or semi open primaries where independents or even members of the Democratic Party are allowed to cross over. If let's say Joe Biden runs again and does not attract significant opposition, you're going to be contesting states like South Carolina, like Texas and other states where Democrats are allowed to cross over, where independents are allowed to cross over. If you take an election denial perspective, um, your chances of winning those sorts of primaries are basically zero. Um, maybe you're better. And, and besides, if you know, unless you're Trump where it's your calling card. Are you going to take votes away from Trump by by doing, I mean, you know, exactly where's the, you know, where's the, the added value to taking that sort of position? Um, I think right now, if I were talking to DeSantis or Youngkin or these others, I would say, look, you got to do one thing before you, before you run in 2024, that is figure out what do you like about Trump and what do you think is wrong with Trump? You need to be crystal clear on that or you're going nowhere in 2024. Right. How do you move the Republican Party forward by saying, here's what the ex-president did that we think is valuable, um, that we want to make part of the Republican legacy? You know, I think it probably has to do with speaking to the issues of disaffection of, Mm -hmm. you know, the white working class and others raising questions. You know, I mean, you and I are. Free traders, not to speak too much, <laughs> out of out of tongue, but uh, but I mean, Trump raised legitimate questions about yeah. the efficacy of free trade, certainly against China. That's right, right, yeah, exactly. You need to figure that out and then say, but you know what? Here's where we differ. Here's where the Republican Party needs to be moving forward. If you can't do that, you're going nowhere in 2024.
0: So let's talk about you're just giving coach, some coaching, free coaching here to uh, <laughs> Governor DeSantis cheap, and Governor Youngkin. Advice. Yeah, cheap advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a good night for Ron DeSantis. Yeah, contextualize it for us. How good a night was it? Uh, oftentimes, you look at midterms in the sense that it gives us the parties' candidates a recipe for success, right? And and okay. and something to replicate. That's certainly the way people are looking at Youngkin when he won in the off year a year ago. And it's got I gotta expect that's uh, what folks are saying about DeSantis. And then, Darren, it, it, do you think it's inevitable we're going to see a debate stage that includes Donald Trump, of course, announced he is running for election, uh, running for Republican nomination again in 2024 uh, with DeSantis on that stage?
1: I think it's inevitable, although, God, why do I make predictions? I mean, it's just a <laughs> fool's errand at this point. Um, you know, Trump, I think, wanted to go first. I think that he thought events were going to go a different way and then was too, you know too stubborn to change um, that it thought it'd be admission of, you know, failure in the midterms. Um, I think DeSantis's victory was a huge victory. Um, you know, it reminded me a little bit of, of George W. Bush's victory in Texas in 98. 98 was kind of a mediocre midterm year. The Republicans didn't pick up seats. Clinton actually did better than expected. But out there in the middle of all that was Bush blowing out the democrats in texas was it ann richards or something or i don't know this was this was the second so this was um, god who did he beat after richards i, uh, I forget. okay i can't remember anyway which tells you something and i think desantis <laughs> stood out in the same way this time um you know uh, just a monster victory you know outpacing uh rubio who had a substantial victory the, the notion was is that you know the the democrats are essentially dead in the state of florida because you know, he's done such a good job of galvanizing the Republican Party. So it it had that feel to it, right? That that there was kind of one major non-Trump candidate that emerged. And I think the Republicans desperately needed that. Um, the difference, of course, is that W got largely positive media coverage in the lead up and then aftermath of that. The, the mainstream media is nowhere near as objective or fawning. Um, as it used to be. They've already gone after DeSantis repeatedly for COVID policies. And I think because they sense him as a, as a threat to Biden.
0: Well, um, we're going to wrap up here in just a second, but that's what makes it all the more interesting. Yeah, It seems to be this person, you know, DeSantis won on his record of achievement. And yeah. despite the national storyline, the national press demonizing him for COVID for education yeah. policy, uh, his just overall demeanor, you know, and, and trying to paint him as a, as an angry, Trumpy, you know, per governor, the, the people who live in that state seem to be quite happy with their governor. And maybe, Darren, you could talk about how that was reflected not only uh, maybe uh, amongst independents, but some of these counties, you know, the uh, Miami-Dade with Hispanics or the county south of Orlando uh, with uh, Puerto Rican, vote. I mean voters who generally wouldn't vote Republican.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, you could talk about this for for days. Of course, we won't. I'll be try to be quick. The um, the DeSantis vote in South Florida, in Miami Dade in particular, um, a, a lot of it uh, the Latino vote went for. They didn't just split. They won the Latino vote according to our poll, and the South American vote. If you drill down, there's the Cuban vote, which rightly gets a lot of emphasis. But Desantis won the South American vote, and in particular talking about Venezuelans, Venezuelans. a lot of immigrants who were really anti-communist, and and Desantis has been able to play up these notions of opportunity, um, and economic entrepreneurship, and you know Miami as a center, as as sort of Miami as a as a metropolitan counterpoint to the Los Angeleses and the New Yorks, um, you know, and and I think that's a really fascinating kind of micro study, um, but. What DeSantis does, though, we mentioned, like, well, the media treat him differently. On the other hand, what he's been able to do is push back against the media without kind of the Trumpy sort of questions about punching down. DeSantis's response have been very thoughtful. And but but taking that kind of not pugnacious is probably the wrong word, but he doesn't let that stuff go unchecked. Um, he's a bit of a fighter. I mean, it's he's our, a fighter. I, and I think a that, fighter. that's that's. You know there, there's sort of two dimensions to Trump's appeal at least right one is the the substance of it but a lot of it is the attitude and if DeSantis is able to to strike Republican voters as somebody who will fight for them who will stand up to these groups that they really don't like the East Coast Elites the media and that kind of thing um then he could be the heir to Trump you know even though he's got more of a velvet Touch them. Yeah. I don't even know if he's a velvet
0: touch me to me. Yeah. Darren, you watch him, he is he has all the fight of a of a Trump, all the disdain of the other side, of the adversary, the national press that you saw. Just more discipline. He's, he's yeah. The, yeah. you know, he's not he's not uh you know, tweeting against every grievance and indulging in conspiracy theories. And uh-huh. it's 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 just uh, he's focused on the issue before him, be it education, be it COVID, whatever, and and consistently talking about. You know, free market, free economy, open economy, individuals making their own choices.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And it's and the response is also not only everything you said, Roger, but it's also more substantive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's 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 sort of leading with attitude and following with some substance. He's sort of leading with substance and injecting some attitude. And I think that that sort of subtle um, you know, what percentage do you want the mix to be is a big deal. With Trump, it was sort of 90% attitude, 10% substance. And it's, it's, it's very different with DeSantis. It's, it sort of leads with, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And he's sort of convincing you he's doing it for his people, for his constituents. And then, you know, then there's a little bit of a look at if The media want to sort of distort this or exaggerate. So he gets that tweak in, but it's not, he's not leading with that. And I I think, I think that may play well this next time around, you know, but, but yeah, he's, he, he and, you know, Youngkin is clearly a winner in 2021. DeSantis is clearly a winner in 2022, and who knows, you know, the stars rise and fall so quickly these days. It's going to be fascinating to watch, especially on the Republican side.
0: Last one I want to get your take on before we uh, give you back your day. Uh, Darren, thanks so much for coming back on the show. We have all this, this is midterm and then you have Mike Pence, Vice President yep. Mike Pence, releasing his memoir of his time in the White House throughout The four years of President Trump's administration, there was no doubt that Mike Pence was entirely loyal. And then, of course, January 6th, as Mike Pence, through this book, um, has written about in detail, departed from the president and was unwilling to do the president's bidding. Darren, vice presidents have a hard time being successful. Sometimes they get the nomination, but even if they do get the nomination, uh, winning is is even more difficult. Does any of this matter hmm. in your judgment? Um, because it really seems like uh, Vice President Pence is going to put his hat in a ring and be a candidate uh, in 2024.
1: Yeah. You know, it was a long tradition, especially on the Republican side. I had a professor at UCLA used to say that when it comes to presidential politics, Democrats, Republicans ask why not? And Democrats ask why <laughs> so there's always an heir to the throne on the Republican side it seems. You, you know, the, the, you know whether it was you go from uh, you know Nixon then Ford and then Reagan was the run runner up to Ford so Reagan's the front runner the next time and then Bush is Reagan's vice president and then you know Dole is is you know sort of the senior Republican. W upsets it a little bit but then you get McCain who was the runner up and a senior and then Romney so the, the, there's a sort of heir to the throne kind of quality that, and Trump really shakes that up. Democrats just, you know, the heir to the throne almost never works for Democrats, except, you know, maybe Mondale in 84, right? They, they, you know, Hillary a little bit, too, I guess. But, uh, you know, they and but Obama shows that, uh, you know, Hillary was the logical candidate in 2008, but didn't get it. Pence is really interesting. He on paper looks great. That is to say, he kind of comes from the Trump world, has sort of the bona fides with that group, but then has this seminal event that you would think might distinguish him um, in a way that would be compelling to people who are least open to somebody like that. But he's also social conservative. And, and that absolutely animates because y- you talk about DeSantis or Youngkin or Trump, they're not candidates that they sort of bring along social conservatives we don't really have other sort of options, but Pence has a real appeal with that group. Mm. And you know, if the Dobbs decision and the fallout from the Dobbs decision is a big deal, if there's no and I don't see anybody even close to Pence's credentials with that group, um, I'm gonna be fascinated. I I think it would be a mistake to underrate Pence. So that's the lane. Done,
0: that's the Lane. Done. He's the social conservative lane.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and in some of these early states, you talk about an Iowa. Um, you know, an early primary or South Carolina. Is there anybody with better credentials to some of these, you know, Christian evangelical communities than Mike Pence? Um, so, you know, Interesting. I, I, you I, know,
0: you, you outlined, as you are explaining kind of the re- Republican mindset is generally why not? And we'll, we'll, we'll end with this, Darren, the person who's thinking why not in that tradition is Ted Cruz. He was right. second to Donald Trump in, in 2016. And uh, I'm, I'm told that's the way he, it, you know, thinks about it and talks about
1: it. Yep. I, I wonder, because you've got that element of it. He's He's been visible. He's continued to, you know, burnish his credentials within the party and try to develop his, you know, his uh, contacts. And, and you know, he has appeal with strong conservatives. I, I wonder about the timeframe though, you know, running second in 2016, what does that mean in 2024? He was young and aggressive and, um, you know, kind of full of fire. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that means in 2024, particularly
0: when the person you lost to in that nominating contest is back on the stage. And that's the point. Yeah. It's all, all the rules kind of fall aside when Donald Trump is exactly candidate once again.
1: Exactly. And you know, we think, and we did this on the democratic side last time, but we think in terms of lanes, we think in terms of niches and Trump just cross cuts that and introduces all these different levers into the, into the electorate and kind of figuring out how the pieces fit together, man, that's a, it's fun, and I love it, and you love it, but, um, man, it is so speculative at this point. And, you know, sense, oh, here, on, here on Reaganism,
0: we're not going to speculate without you. So, Darren, thank you for <laughs> taking this time with us, and uh, I expect we'll have you back on before 2024 uh, vote takes place. Great to have you back.
1: Always a pleasure, man. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube
0: and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.